Turn with me to the book of Haggai. Haggai is situated in the Old Testament. You find uh, Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and then Zephaniah and then Haggai. It's just a few chat or a few books from the end of the Old Testament and it's just two short chapters. And we're going to be spending the last four Sundays of this year going through this book. Uh, one of the reasons I chose this book is because of we just got through going through Daniel, and this is a time period that follows after the time period that was in Daniel, so I think it will be, be helpful for us to kind of understand that context since we were already there. Before we do that, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with the text. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are reminded over and over that all the words contained in our Bibles are yours. They're your perfect word for us, your people, without error, unfailing in what they seek out to do. They are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to our very souls. We are reminded this time of year more than ever that You indeed are the Word made flesh. So Lord, we pray that as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would indeed dwell among us. That You would be here among us as we open Your Word as we learn from it. We pray that You would convict us of our sin as we come face to face with our sin in this passage from Haggai. We pray that you indeed would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I came to this passage, it made me think of the many times in our lives when we kind of had to go with plan B. A lot of times I'll say uh, something like having to drop back and punt or something along those lines. As a teacher, I am regularly, almost daily anymore, presented with scenarios where I have to take a set of circumstances that I've been given and I have to make changes based on some sort of new timeline or something that I've learned. This happens with things like holiday plans. You've probably already experienced that this year. Family vacations, money that you've saved up for something else, and all of a sudden you need to get a new dishwasher or something along those lines. Plans change because the world is unstable, because people are sinful. We can say that for sure, but sometimes it's just because we change. Our preferences change and so forth, and we have to go with plan B. As we begin the book of Haggai, we enter into plan B. People of God were tasked with rebuilding Jerusalem, especially the temple of God. That was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, if you remember that. And by the time we get to Haggai, those instructions to rebuild were almost 20 years old. And there was very little progress to show for it. They had hoped for a swift rebuilding of the temple and made some good progress at first, but then discouragement set in, opposition arose, and plan A it was no longer good. Haggai begins his book by giving the people of God a plan B. As we move into this book, there's one overarching theme, and that is return of the covenant worship of God by the covenant people of God. 
Just like us, the people were placing their own comfort and contentment above the worship of their God. In our text today, God is going to call them out on that. As we start this book, we'll consider this call, the people of God, to renew their commitment to Him and to restart the building of His temple. We'll look at that idea in three separate um, parts. God challenging hypocrisy. Next, God demanding glory. And then lastly, God blessing obedience. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Haggai chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Haggai 1, 1 through 15. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Dehazadak, the, the high priest. Thus said the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, or is it, is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but have never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when I brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above... Therefore, the heavens above you have withdrew the dew, or withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke with the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for a little bit of context, it's been several months since we were in the book of Daniel, but where we left off in Daniel, the Persian Empire had come in, right, and they had taken over Babylon, Babylon who had taken over Jerusalem and sent many of them into exile in Babylon, and so Persia had come in, and the people of God were finally going to be set free from their captors, kind of. They were still going to be under Persian rule, 
But in 538 B.C., Cyrus, who was one of the Persian kings, issued an edict that allowed all the Jewish people to return home and to build their city. And so I'm going to read from that. I'm going to go to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You can follow along with me. But I think it's important for us to hear this edict because the entirety of the book of Haggai is really about the people of God returning to Jerusalem and doing things they should do. And so this comes from Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord of the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus the king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. That's something. It's almost like we're back in Egypt again, all over again. They were allowed to return and rebuild Jerusalem, and as they left, they were given gifts by their former captors. As you read through Ezra, they start the process of rebuilding the altar. Then they lay a foundation for the temple. And when they do that, there's the beginning of doubts. And there's lots of doubts, particularly as they lay the temple. Even just this act of laying the foundation of the temple causes some concern. And I'm going to read from Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. So I think this is important for us to understand the context so here they are, they're laying the foundation of the temple of God. They're rebuilding the temple. The temple of Solomon had been completely destroyed. They're rebuilding this temple, and it's happening. This is, this is the Lord's will. Seventy years in exile, and here we go. Ezra 3, starting at verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of the king of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and their sound was heard far away. They wept because some remembered the first temple in all of its glory. Even those who hadn't witnessed it there, who hadn't actually been there in all of its glory, had heard stories. And they watched the new temple foundation. And as they watched this new foundation be laid, they must have been disappointed. 
by seeing its scale. It was not going to be nearly as big as Solomon's temple. Some rejoiced. Others wept. And the text tells us that you really couldn't tell the difference between the shouts of joy and the shouts of weeping. The state of Judah was a confused mess. So when the Samaritans started causing problems in Ezra chapter 4, it led to a complete halt of the process. And this is around 536 B.C. Enter the prophet Haggai in 520. 16 years later. Not much is known about Haggai the man other than he was a prophet of the Lord acting as the Lord's direct mouthpiece in a time of turmoil and confusion. In verse 1 we hear that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. We have here today these words because Haggai received direct revelation from the Lord to the people of God for all time. I say this at the beginning of every new book because it bears repeating and I will continue repeating it as long as I am in this pulpit. This is not happening anymore. I did not receive any special revelation concerning the book of Haggai. None. It's already been given to us. God is not speaking to me any more than He speaks to anyone else concerning His Word. We have here the completed Scriptures before us and Haggai's words to us today need no additions and they need no subtractions. Haggai's words to us were His words for God's people at that time as well because God doesn't change, nor does His Word or its meaning. And I think that is just a reminder for us as we go into this book. We are easily convinced that God is speaking to us in special ways that He's not speaking to others. And it's just not true. And it causes us to do things that God speaks against many times in His Word. And we see that as we begin this book. And that brings me to the first point, God challenging hypocrisy. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. The second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So just a couple of more historical things. The Persian Empire is not without its problems if you read about their empire. Without going into details, Darius was king of Persia again after some political intrigue, and Judah was a vassal state of Persia, though they were allowed to worship however they wanted to for the most part. For the most part, Haggai was the Lord's prophet, Zerubbabel, this man with a fun name. He was a man in David's line. He was a chosen king of Israel to rule the people of God. Joshua, the son, was the high priest of the people. And he served as kind of the religious conscience for the people, particularly as they didn't have a temple. There was no sacrifices being made or anything like that at this time. They built an altar, but the people were lax in returning to their religious ideas. Both Zerubbabel and Joshua were Persian appointments, but they still respected the Jewish line of succession for priests and kings. Zerubbabel showing us again that there will always be a king on the throne of David until the time of Christ who will reign for all eternity. And then we get to verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. It is, is it 
a time for yourself, or that's, that's verse two, sorry. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This reminds us why we are here. That it is not the year to be rebuilding the temple. When I read this the first time, it reminded me of like Groundhog Day. You know, not necessarily the movie, sure, but definitely the, the holiday that we have for some weird reason. That the people just kind of came out, they looked at all the trouble that was all around them, and they said, no, not time to rebuild. Twenty more years of doing nothing. But notice, they haven't been sitting around doing nothing in all their sadness and difficulty. They've been busying themselves just fine, as we see in verses 3 and 4. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? while this house lies in ruins. So while they hadn't been rebuilding the temple because of political concerns and many things, if you read through the book of Ezra, they were going to go ahead and build some new things for themselves. They were building walls with paneled housing, which would have been a real luxury in those times. While the temple of the Lord lay in perpetual, incomplete state, you can imagine just this foundation sitting there with for 20 years, with nothing being added to it, the houses of God's people were uptown. While they said, it is not yet time to rebuild the temple, they were also saying, let us build better houses for ourselves. It might be easy for us to point fingers at Judah here, saying, get your priorities straight, people. Why can't you just do what you're supposed to do? As long as we're pointing those fingers by looking in a mirror, It is going to be okay. I want us to understand because we all understand this idea. We all understand what Judah is going through here. We don't understand going back, coming back from exile into a land that we left 70 years ago. We don't understand that. But we do understand the idea of kind of circling the wagons when times get hard. Taking care of the immediate things. Times weren't easy for Israel at all. They were back in their land There was trouble in their home with this group of people called the Samaritans, which we're familiar with from the New Testament. They were being blamed for being disloyal to Persia, and the Persian government received this blame from the Samaritans and then ordered a halt to their rebuilding process. And so this has not been easy. Here they are after years of taking care of themselves and forgetting their God. And this sounds noble. This idea of taking care of themselves, right? We live in a world where we, we hear these things, and this new word that's been kind of thrown around of probably the last ten years, I've heard it more than any time, even the last five, this idea of self-care. And self-care is good. 100% it's good. I take naps. I play video games. If I didn't take time to unwind, it would be bad. It's good to care for oneself. Absolutely. However, what passes for self-care nowadays is a lot of times just self-indulgence to the point of self-glorification. One doesn't have to look far to see if a people can't have it their way, then everything else has to stop. Live in that society today, they lived in that society then, because nothing changes. You hear stuff like, if you can't love others until you've loved yourself. And it sounds all quaint and good and just just lovely, but it's not true. It's putting makeup on the self-indulgent pig. Loving others is considered 
or is considering others more significant than yourself. It is putting aside your own needs for the, for others. And what the people of the Lord had done here was even worse than that. Because they had built nicer houses rather than finishing God's house. Not because God needed a place to live. He spoke all things into existence. God wasn't wandering around wondering when His house was going to be finished because He was homeless. That's not how this works at all. But it was, this represented the right covenant worship of their God and their communion with their God. And they were not finishing that because they didn't want that. The temple of the Lord represented the place where God met His people. The place where atonement was made. Where pardon was given. And they were forsaking those things for paneling on their walls. How did the Lord respond? Verse 6, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat and you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He continues in verse 9, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Nothing they did prospered. All their efforts went to nothing. The Lord frustrated their efforts because they had attempted to rob Him of His glory. Even as they attempted to make their lives better, the Lord wasn't going to allow it. You see that idea going forward even there in verses 10 and 11. The strong picture of the God literally blowing things down as they set it up. And why, he asked the rhetorical question, Because my house lies in ruins while you busy yourselves with your own house. And I want to be careful here. Because this isn't necessarily a warning to us today. In the sense of, you know, if we don't do this, then God is going to do that to us. Right? But it's more of a look at our own hypocrisy. We don't need to read this as, again, if we do as they did, God is going to do that to us. He might. He might do worse. He might relent and continue to allow us to draw breath even though we deserve none of it. The point here is to examine our hearts. You see that in verse 5. You see that again in verse 7. Consider your ways. Because we all know what it is like to forsake the glory of God for our own. Especially during tough times, it's easy to put up all the necessary walls with paneling, of course, and to make sure that we are secure. All the while, we worship a God who sent His very Son to secure for us all eternity. Why do we worry about the small things when God has already taken care of all of it? We are like those crying as we watch the new temple being rebuilt realizing that it can't be nearly like it was. Even though it was small in their eyes, they should have rejoiced at God's provision for their lives. We can't possibly be happy with plan B when it happens. Even though plan B for us is always God's plan A. God doesn't have a plan B. He's never surprised 
He demands 100% of the glory, even when times are hard. That brings us to the second point, God demanding glory. Look with me again at verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Here in verse 7, we have this command again, consider your ways. The Hebrew literally there is to set your heart on your ways. Consider them. Reflect on them. Consider that they have been delivered by Cyrus, who was who was prophesied, remember, in Isaiah 150 years before he came. Isaiah named him by name and said he was going to come and deliver the people of God. And the Lord delivered them. And now He's bringing them back to their home after 70 years in exile. And they were taking time to cover their walls with paneling rather than building a proper house of worship. Consider your ways. Go get materials and build a house that I might be glorified says the Lord. This is a proper response to the goodness of God and salvation, worship, and glory. All other responses are insufficient at best and just plain wrong at worst. And again, I want to be careful here. This isn't to let us off the hook, but I want to make sure that we come at this passage correctly. I did a quick search about this particular passage, verse 8 in particular, and capital campaigns of churches. If you guys, if you've ever been a part of a capital campaign before where a church is building something, you know, they usually have some sort of verse that goes along with that. It's kind of their theme verse. And so I looked up Haggai 1-8, capital campaigns and churches, and my search did not disappoint. You can hear it now. Hey everyone, we've been holding out. We've been taking care of our own houses and neglecting God's. Now it's time to build a house that God will be happy with. And we could do all that. We could do all that and miss the real sin issue here. The people of God had the opportunity to build this temple. And here they they had blessings from their captors too. Don't miss that. They were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and the Persians and the Babylonians were even encouraged and and commanded even to give gifts to them as they went back of silver and gold and free will offerings and beasts and, and all these things that they would have in order to rebuild their temple, this house of worship. And Cyrus even named the God of Israel, build a house of worship for this God, the only one true God, of course. But Cyrus didn't know that. And they get back to Jerusalem only to quit right after they start. And they started. And because it seemed small and insignificant, those who remembered Solomon's temple and all of its splendor, they saw this new foundation of the temple being built and they cried out in sadness. Their cries were as loud as those who were cheering. You couldn't even tell the difference between who was sad and who was happy. They had a golden opportunity to re-engage their covenant fellowship with their covenant Lord, and they chose to make their own walls look nice instead. And 20 years passed. The sin wasn't materialism. Their materialism was just a symptom of the fact that they did not desire a relationship with their God. Same question is for us then. Consider your ways. 
How have you neglected that relationship? And to be careful, this is not a question about how many quiet times did you have this week. I'm not asking that. How are you demonstrating a desire to be close with God? How are you fostering that relationship continually? We are bad at this. We easily get distracted by wall paneling, especially when things aren't turning out like we thought they should. When plan B happens, it's so much harder to remain close to the Lord, ultimately because we want to blame Him for what He's done. We don't desire a relationship with Him. But even while we were yet sinners, God sent His Son to have that covenant bond with His people. From the foundation of the earth, the Lord selected a people for Himself. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God didn't merely say some promises to us. His promises became flesh and they dwelt among us. And we get a picture of that in the next section We lead to the last point. God's blessing, obedience. Look with me again at verses 12 and 13. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Here's the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. They obeyed the Lord's voice. They started the rebuilding process. The healing of that relationship would begin. And God's words in response to His people, I am with you. And just as He could have chose the drought to come upon the earth, He could choose to stir up His people so that they would begin work on that temple I am with you is still true today. Our Lord Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is with us today. Sometimes it may not seem like it. Our desires for God may diminish. They may wane and flow as we struggle in this life. Our desire for almost anything else, even wood paneling, may increase. We may even catch a glimpse of the blessing of God and like the people watching the foundation of the temple, we might cry, wishing that it could be more. Why can't you just do a little bit more for us? We're tired of these small things. Brothers and sisters, let's not forget the promise is not just for this life. The blessings that we have in this life are amazing. The Lord is good to us. He's good to His people. He's good to His church. But the blessing that we have is in Christ and it is the life beyond this one. In Zechariah chapter 4, I encourage you to read through Zechariah's. He was a contemporary of Haggai's. And he's famous in chapter 4. It says this, the verse, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. What is he alluding to? He's alluding to that day. In Ezra, when those who cried, they were longing to see the former glory of Israel. And they cried. 
Though the Lord's work in our lives may seem small and insignificant, it's not. Though we may be wanting Him to stir us like He did for Zerubbabel and his buddies there in Haggai chapter 1, we cannot despise the day of small things. We have a greater hope in the One who is making all things new, and that is no small thing. For the unbeliever here, there is no hope outside of Jesus. He is the Lord made flesh. He alone can save you. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. For you, the world is a perpetual exile with no hope of return. Only eternal punishment at the end. Confess that Jesus is Lord today so that you might be saved. Christians, we live in a time where it might be easy to say to the Lord, as we look around us, it might be easy to say, now is not the time to know God more, to learn how to trust Him, to stop placing faith in myself. Now is not the time. I would rather trust in anything else than do that. Yet there is no better time for us than to cast aside those ways that we attempt to glorify ourselves and find more and more ways to glorify our Lord. He is with us. In fact, He has never left us. The whole way, He will continue to be with us for all eternity. So let us live in such a way to bring glory to God. Let us do so to build up His church here in this life and to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ in the world. Let's go to Him in prayer.